was equally significant in terms of what was going on in the clubs and the after-hour jam sessions. And in 1925, he came to the attention of Duke Ellington, who at the time was building his first great band, the Washingtonians. And this is what happened. They were at the Comedy Club in Manhattan, and there was a showdown between Bechet and the saxophone star of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, Coleman Hawkins, who apparently had made some disparaging remarks about New Orleans musicians in general. And so Sidney felt that he had to sort of uh, teach him a lesson. So Ellington uh, got there late, about 6 a.m. He had had some other business, and he sees Coleman Hawkins rushing out of the comedy club, trying to stuff his instrument into his case and hail a taxi at the same time, with Sidney Bechet still playing chasing him into the street. So all I to say, I think I can use this guy in my band. So he hires Bechet. And Bechet, being the free spirit that he was, begins to miss rehearsals. And then he misses an engagement. And so he is told, the Duke wants to see you. So he comes into the office, and Ellington goes, man, you missed a gig. What happened? Bechet went, oh, I'm sorry, boss. I was lost in a taxi cab in New York City for three days. <laughs> now, when he was playing in New Orleans and used to play out in Millenburg, he'd get on Smokey Mary and make his way out there. But the problem that Eddie Dawson said they kept having in the band was he'd fall asleep on the train. And so for a Sunday afternoon, he'd be going round and round on the train on Smokey Mary. So Bechet actually thought that was a plausible explanation that he gave to uh, Ellington. But this was the problem he was having, uh, that he was too fiery to be handled by a young band leader at the time, like Duke Ellington. And so he decides he's going to open his own club, and it didn't really work out very well. Now, for Ellington, it worked out fine because he hired a Bechet prodigy named Johnny Hodges, who was with him for years. He had that Bechet type of passion and sound, but he was much easier to manage. So Bechet finds himself in a bad business situation with Club Basha, as it was called, or Bechet, B-A-S-H-A is the way it was spelled. Some poor investments, he's got to get out of the country. Where do you guess he goes? France. Frankie Lynn is going to tell us about how he hooks up, gets back to France uh, with one of the most famous shows uh, in Parisian cultural memory, La Revue Negre. Uh, I want to make you familiarize. This is where Josephine Baker comes into the, the, the whole thing. You know, Josephine Baker, she, she came from humble beginnings, very humble. Her mother was like a washerwoman, you know. Her father was a, a drummer, and he left her just after birth. So she had a rough childhood, and she wound up just like her mother. She would, she would go into wealthy people's homes, and she would clean the homes and stuff like that, and she would waitress on the side, babysit. Whatever she could do to, to keep going. She was a hustler. She always kept it. And she never depended on a man. And uh, she had her ways. She married. She was married like three times in a short period of time. Her third husband's last name was Baker. And she kept that name, Josephine Baker. But uh, she went on to with no one Sissel. She, uh, for shuffle along, she, uh, she auditioned for that show. And she didn't make it. The show. They, they, they cut her and they said she was too black and she was too, she, she just didn't look right in the part. So she got a job with the show as a dresser. So what she did was she studied every dancer 
And she got every step down. And when the first person went down in there that was a dancer, Josephine Baker got that job. You know, she uh, stepped into that and she was a great success. They said the way she rolled her eyes and she would, she, she was almost like a, a, a character, you know, and she really excelled at that. So then she went to Paris. And, and, and uh, when she got to uh, Paris, she got La, La, La Revue Negre. When she was over there, and she was famously famous over there. And she did really well, and the people just adopted her. They loved her there. You know, she had a style about her, and she was sexy, and she, like, she dressed with a, one outfit was three feathers, you know, and she would go, she did things like uh, people never did over there. She dressed topless, danced topless, and stuff like that. But she also had a side to her that was strange. She had, uh, a leopard, uh, a leopard named Chiquita, a chimpanzee named Ethel. She had a pig named Albert, Kiki a goat, and a parrot. She had parrots, uh, fish, and parakeets. But the thing that really was, she adopted 12 children. Josephine Baker. And they were all different ethnic groups like that. She used to call them her rainbow tribe. And people would come by the house and they would have tours come by. And she would tell, show people how people of different ethnicities got along together. And that said a lot about her, you know. And as famous as she was, you know, at the top of her career, you know, she comes, she comes back in the 50s and 60s back to New York. And they uh, go to the store club and they refused her service because she was black, you know. So uh, she got into a kind of a... A face-off with Walter Winchell, who was uh, he stood for, uh, you know, he wanted to, he wasn't all about that. And to this day, you know, it's, it's still talked about. The NAACP uh, named May the 20th Josephine Baker Day just because of that, because she stood toe to toe with him, and it was a, it was a, a change. And then Josephine came back later in her years. She came back to Carnegie Hall, and you know, she was always rejected every time she came back. And when she got to Carnegie Hall, she stood in front of people, she didn't sing one note, and she got a 10 minute standing ovation. Before well she deserved. It. Well deserved. That's right. Jerry, uh, why don't you tell, first of all, let's take a look at what that show looks like. And Jerry, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on with jazz and the French psyche, the kind of uh, categorization of jazz as primitivism that is happening. And to some extent, you know, the, uh, Josephine Baker made the most of that. She really uh, sort of pitched to that perception. Well, there was a huge difference in society, in French society and American society in the, the 1920s. Um, actually, a, a black regiment uh, led by James Reese Europe in the uh, World War I had gone over there, and they were a very swinging band for a military band. And they introduced jazz to the Europeans initially back in 1919. And uh, that's when uh, the French got their first taste of jazz. But unlike in America, uh, black people could eat in any restaurant they chose. They could stay in any hotel. They had complete liberties that they didn't experience over here. And more than that, the French people even embraced um, the black culture. Um, they were fascinated by it. And Josephine Baker stood for everything that was liberating at the time, because this was uh, not only a time of shifting um, racial changes globally, but also for women, women's suffrage movement. So Josephine Baker, she's over there dancing topless, she's got short hair, cropped like a man, 
And uh, it wasn't just uh, racial freedom, but it was also freedom for, for women. And she, she embodied everything that was uh, freedom. And they, uh, the French people just really, really, really loved the African mystique. There's a new book by Matthew Jordan called Du Jazz, uh, Jazz and French Cultural Identity. And he particularly looks at the French response to this show, La Prévue And this is the first time they really experienced the best jazz that the United States had to offer. And Sidney Bechet really is the core element in that impact. And so we want to keep in mind that uh, maybe he got the recognition that he was seeking in France before he got it in the United States. But given his wanderlust, he was not content to just stay in France, and so he was going to be moving on and moving on with different groups. After La Prévinet, he uh, became a star with Noble Sissel's orchestra. Uh, Frank, do you want to tell us a little bit about Sissel and sort of what was going on with Bechet's connection with him? Well, you know, Bechet was the touring Europe at the time, and uh, they had a little band that he also worked with, uh, with Tom, uh, Tommy Latin. And uh, they did some recordings. They did uh, Shag, they did Maple Leaf Rag, I Found a New Baby, stuff like that. And they were very successful. They would tour Europe and stuff like that uh, with Noble Sissel. And they also wound up in Moscow. And, and uh, that's... Uh, Tommy Latin was his... Uh, he was a guy that was... Uh, he didn't always go along with what Bechet wanted him to do, but they were close, close friends. They had business properties together. They had a tailor shop at one time. And uh, and Sidney always had all these business ventures going on and stuff like that. But Tommy did wind, uh, finally wind up playing with Bechet. And some of his best recordings ever were with Sidney Bechet. And uh, like I said, uh, he wound up in, uh, with Noble no, Sussel in Moscow. I'm a, yeah, they were fast friends, and they met for the first time in Moscow. And this was one of the most memorable trips that Bechet took. He played at the Grand Opera House in Moscow, which obviously at this time, in uh, the late 1920s, was still in the throes of the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, Bechet uh, exclaimed that they treated him like royalty in the Soviet Union, but that doesn't mean that they shot him. <laughs> After he returned to Paris, however, he had some more trouble. And Jerry's going to tell us about a shooting incident, and this was carried in the New York Amsterdam News after it ran in the New York Times. So this was an international incident in which Sidney Bechet was involved. Jealous American musicians staged gun duel in Paris. Four persons lay wounded in Montmartre when smoke of battle cleared away dozens of shots fired. Paris of December 21st. 1928. A revolver duel between two jealous American jazz band artists disturbed the early morning revelry of Montmartre Saturday, and when the smoke had cleared away, four persons lay wounded in the street in full view of a dozen or more well-known nightclubs. A large crowd of men and women, including a number of Americans who were homeward bound after visits to the nightclubs, saw the fight. Basically, Bechet got in a, a gun battle with a a banjo player, they were both bragging who was the better player, I think. There's some dispute about the nature of the of uh, the actual uh, cause of the disturbance, but 
Neither one of them seemed to be a very good shot. Mache got nicked in the head. Uh-huh. The other guy didn't even get hit, uh, but four people did get hit, including a French national, and that caused uh, uh, ultimately uh, big trouble for Mache. Eleven months in a French prison, and that's how Cindy Mache's hair went gray. Evoke the fantasia that was depicted in this film, uh, Einbreaker. We're now going to listen to Egyptian fantasy, what Bache uh, often called Egyptian. <coughs> returns to the United States, and in 1932, he makes his first recordings as a leader, the New Orleans Feet Warmers, because New Orleans jazz is about dancing, after all. These are wonderfully evocative recordings, but the timing could not have been worse. The bottom had dropped out of the record market, largely pushed by the technological innovation of radio, and between 1928 and 1932, when the Feet Warmers recordings were made, 90% of the market for phono discs was lost in the United States. And so the depression was very hard on Bechet. As Frankie pointed out, uh, he worked with Ladner in a tailor shop for a while. And his lifeline was the Noble Sissel Orchestra. 
But in the late 1930s, another Frenchman, Hugues Panassier, decided he would come to the United States and he would reverse the trend which had led to the popularity of swing orchestras at the expense of New Orleans artists by promoting a New Orleans revival which began with a recording session uh, organized around Sidney Bechet in 1938. This brought Sidney back in as a major voice in the recording studios and led to some of the most uh, evocative material he ever recorded. And so we are leading our way toward what is the favorite for many people. Keep in mind that this record was made four days for Blue Note after the death of his best friend, Tommy Ladner. So we're going to listen now to the Bechet version of the great Gershwin tune from Porgy and Bess, Summertime. I would like to clarify. I can't even begin to approach Bechet's um, method of playing, his note choices. His, um, so really, if you don't do anything after you leave tonight, but go home and spend a dollar on iTunes and pick up Sidney Bechet's version of Summertime. We're going to play Summertime for you. It's a, an important song. Of course, it's a standard now. But at the time Bechet recorded it, it had only been written uh, a little bit about four years earlier by the Gershwin brothers and DuBose Hayward. So it was a relatively new song, and like all jazz musicians everywhere, that we cover pop tunes and until they're no longer popular and they're just calling jazz tunes. <laughs> then so we we'll revive them. Yeah, they revive them. So we'll do for you summertime.
the revival might have started with Bichet, but he was not the only beneficiary. And this is from a recording studio, uh, RCA Victors in New York, which had previously dropped Jelly Roll Morton in 1931, but on the strength of the book Jasmine, which was published in 1939, they brought him back into the recording studio. And Barry's going to tell us a little bit about who's in this picture and the significance of this session. All right, well, uh, you people glad you came along, you having a good time? Yeah. Yeah. But I was lucky I got to, to know quite a few of these fellows here. Sidney's in Paris, on the trumpet, Zuzi Singh, my friend, is on the drums, Albert Dickens. I've never met Bashley, I've never met him. Of course, I didn't know Jelly. He died the year I was born. But uh, I was lucky to, to know them. And there was a lot of talk that uh, Nick was uh, worried about Sydney coming there. There was supposed to be some friction. There wasn't any friction. Judy told me they put their arms around each other and just were, you know, glad to see one another and all that kind of stuff. Kind of like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Friction that existed between Lewis and, uh, and Sidney was on the, um, the Decker recording of 1940. And uh, I've heard that exaggerated to such an extent, all kind of nonsense. I heard that one time somebody told me Lewis pulled a gun in the recording studio. So I asked Sudi about it, and uh, the first number they did was Cold Cop Blues. And uh, <laughs> they stopped, and Lewis came over and he said, uh, Sidney, look, he, said, he put his arm around Sidney, and he said, look, you know, all the boys in New Orleans know the trumpet plays the lead. Sidney uh, said, uh, Louis, the Creole people always called him Louis, they're not Louis, but mostly everybody around here called him Louis Armstrong. And Sidney said, Louis, you were right, Pops, you go ahead. And that was the, that according to Zuti Singleton, who was an eyewitness to it all, that was the extent of that. And I later confirmed that with, uh, the trombone player on the recording, Claude Jones. I had a place, I'm from England, you know. Can you tell? I've been here long enough. We, we had our English band play at a funny time little uh, place near Southampton called Buckley. And uh, I noticed this guy came in and uh, he was sitting at the bar watching everything we played. He was a black guy. He was sitting there. And uh, the intermission I went to him, I said, uh, you from the States? And he said, yes. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm a waiter on the Queen Mary. And uh, you remember the little boat? <laughs> and uh, um, I said, really, where are you from? He said, New York City. And I said, what's your name? He said, Claude Jones. That was a trombone player. 
on the uh, jellies, the record thing that they just showed. And uh, Claude was also on the, the Decca recording, which I'm, and he confirmed uh, that story about Lewis and uh, Sidney. There was never any major hassle. I think a lot of people want to put that in books so they can sell books, you know. But uh, it just didn't happen. Anyways, back to you. These, these people were friends for life. That's the point we're making. Is that Even though they got in some humbugs with each other because they were so competitive, because they were so talented, they had that love all the way through. Bichet was a, a person who loved to experiment and Blue Note, uh, you heard uh, Summertime, uh, the product of Blue Note Records, which was a great place for jazz musicians, both traditional and modern, to experiment in the late 1930s. But Bechet went far beyond that. He began exploring ethnic music as well. And so now we're going to hear something that is representative of this reconnection to the music of Martinique and Guadeloupe that was so important to Bechet. Ernest Barnumon said that this was the first guy who sort of brought New Orleans music full circle back to some of its roots with his Haitian band recording from 1939. So, uh, Jerry, let's hear some boxcar shorty. Sure. This number was uh, from the pen of Fichet. It wasn't on his original Haitian recording, Haitian orchestra. He recorded it some years later, but it's very indicative of the jazz calypso style, which he was one of the first to pioneer on. Sidney Bechet of being a megalomaniac, and this one band, one man band recording uh, could be interpreted that way. Uh, who needs those other musicians? I'll do it all myself. 
this was actually the first time that an overdub recording uh, was ever attempted. Not without, uh, not with a tape recorder, but by recording sections and then re-recording the whole thing. And the man responsible for that was Mr. John Reed, who was uh, Bechet's inside man at Victor. He got him contracts. He helped to manage his money. Uh, he was absolutely uh, essential in terms of trying to keep Sydney on that even track that would allow his career to develop in the 1940s. Uh, Bechet also made trips back to New Orleans, and uh, John Reed was there to record them. Uh, Barry, with the American Music Library, uh, American Music Reissue series with the George Buck Foundation, has brought a lot of these recordings uh, back out, available on CD. But Bechet, in other words, was also very interested in sort of keeping his New Orleans roots alive. But uh, Barry, I'd like you to talk a little bit now about his relationship with Bunk Johnson because the New Orleans revival that began with Bechet and Oupinacier in 1938 ultimately became fixated on Bunk Johnson. And Bunk and Bechet, for various reasons, got together in 1945 and performed in Boston. And uh, things, how did things go, Barry? Well, they were kind of... Uh from the start, really. I mean, Bunk was an old-style New Orleans trumpet player who absolutely believed in playing the lead on everything and uh, not playing things too fast. And he just wanted the drummer to just <laughs> didn't want any explosions or anything. And Sydney was kind of wild, and uh, so they never did get along. Um, and they hired the modern piano player here and uh, the drummer, they were kind of, they, did, they thought they were all nuts, these old timers. But <laughs> one of the funny ones in the band was George Foster. Uh, they call him Pop Foster. And uh, he was a, I mean, I knew him. I've been lucky in my life, I knew a lot of these people. And uh, he was an eternal prankster. He really was. It was just unbelievable the things he would get up to. And uh, with him in that band, he really never did stand a chance because he exploited uh, most of everything between, between uh, Bunk and Bashay. And um, in fact, I I'll show you this. I don't know where you'd ever get this. I've had it for years. But uh, this is a little film that was made by a friend of mine. And I can't even think of his name now. That's pretty. But anyhow, see this little film? It's a uh, old-fashioned video film. It's a, uh, yeah, they have a thing now. It's called Alma's Jazzy Marriage. And this is Alma Foster on the front cover. She was married to George. And uh, she tells that, that story of um, uh, Bunk and, and Sydney much better than I could. She was there with her, you know. But I think when it started, they were both, well, Sydney was the one mostly who was pushing to get together with Bunk. It wasn't the other way around. And uh, they made a series of home recordings that they sent to one another, talking about the old days and stuff, you know. But I think the band was kind of doomed. And, uh, and after they got rid of Bunk, or well, he quit, I don't know which side of the story you believe, but. Uh, they sent to Peter Bokaj. Peter Bokaj went up there and played with them. But then Pete had to come back to New Orleans because he collected insurance. 
and they got Johnny Windhurst to play with them, who actually suited them a lot better than either Pete or Bunk did. But that was basically the, the story of that band, anyhow. Well, Sidney also brought up uh, his brother to play at Jazz Limited, Leonard Bechet. Uh, you'll see on trombone uh, with this band, which is very interesting. Uh, it's the two of them together. Guess what his day gig was? Now, he didn't actually use the trombone in oral surgery. But Barry, you got to know some people in this family, didn't you? The son of Leonard, of course, would be Leonard Jr. Yeah, that's Leonard. And he was, um, he always talked about his uncle. His uncle, of course, being Sydney. And uh, he was very respectful. He kind of looks like him, too, in the early pictures, you know. And um, Leonard was, uh, uh, he played alto, and he played clarinet, and he played soprano, too. Um, and we always wanted him to, Alton Purnell and Ed Garland and myself, we had a little band out in Los Angeles. And we always wanted Leonard to make a tour of Europe with us. One tour on the soprano. And we told him, Leonard, you'll become a millionaire from that tour. Never have to work again. But he said, but I don't work now. Because <laughs> kind of, he used to hang around all the New Orleans musicians fixing their furniture for him and stuff out there. And he played music too, but uh, he was very respectful of his, his uncle. That he told me, he said, uh, a lot of uh, people don't understand. My uncle, he never called him Sidney, he always called him my uncle. He said, uh, I don't know whether he had a mother fixation or not, he said, but he was always playing and listening to songs about mothers. Like, like he recorded, what's that song? Uh, See you, my man. Uh, have you seen my mother? Yeah. yeah. My mother's eyes. See you, my man. Yeah, all those kind of mother songs. And he said, Leonard told me, he said, Mom, listen He said, he kept worrying me about this song. He's getting me to learn it. And he played it for me. And he sung it for me. And he said, it was about his mother. And uh, can I sing it for you? This is a cappella. You ain't got to do the thing. <laughs> Nothing. It's called uh, Out of My Cradle Days. Out of my cradle days You were with me
$1,000 question. What yeah. is Sidney Bechet doing in that box in London? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't there. I was too young. I was eight when that happened. It happened in November of 1949. He came to see the Humphrey Littleton band. You people over here of Humphrey Littleton, famous English trumpet player? Yeah. He came to see his band. Uh, what was the name of that jail? The Winter Garden. Damn, I've got a good memory for being eight. And anyhow, Humphrey introduced him from the stage. They had this crazy law at that time. American musicians couldn't appear on the English stages and vice versa. You couldn't, when I took my English band to play the Louis Armstrong birthday in the Shrine Auditorium, we had to play in the pit. You couldn't play on the stage. And so, Bashay got out his soprano and played from up in the box. <laughs> That's true. He just played from up there. And when Humphrey introduced him, Humphrey's clarinet player, Ian Christie, told me, I said, well, what did he say? He said, uh, we have in this box a legend, a complete living legend of American music. Mr. Sidney Bashay. Bashay stood up and said, In person! <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Let me think. I don't think I've told him enough, don't you? Well, it's clear that by the late 1940s, things were drying up for Sydney in the U.S., and so he's heading back to England, and eventually he makes his way back to France at the invitation of Charles Delaunay, who was putting together the Paris Jazz Festival, in which Sidney Bechet was pitted against the number one modernist of the time, the driving force of bebop, Charlie Parker. You can see maybe a little tension going on there in the photo. And particularly here. Bechet looks like he just, uh, the cat that swallowed the canary, or maybe it was a bird. But what happened at the festival, what happened at the festival was that Bechet was the hit, that the French audience absolutely went crazy for him, and he got the message, which is, if things aren't going well for me in the United States, maybe I should go to France. Look familiar? In Louisiana, we understand this iconography. Jerry, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Bechet felt about France, the forces that brought him in? Well, it was a a big hit at the, the week-long festival. The crowds definitely gravitated to to Bechet's sets uh, over uh, performing them, although there was a duel between the modernists and the, the traditionalists. But by and large, he was extremely well-received in France, uh, eventually becoming a, a national celebrity. But he was uh, just could do no wrong. The, the people would flock to his concerts. Uh, there were all... Uh, Many documented events where there were riots, people storming the doors because the tickets were sold out, and they break the doors down to get in to hear Bechet. He was uh, a very unique and, and uniquely appealing to the French audience. They even erected a statue in Chouinard Park. 
from before we got the one here in Armstrong Park. That's uh, it's a replica of the original in France. The French fell in love with him, and uh, he became a recording star. This is the Vogue label, also owned by Charles Delaunay. So his friends were doing some good for him. But some of the classic Bechet material that we celebrate today was recorded while he was in France in the 1950s. And particularly, we want to hear this song because everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. Petit Fleur. This is also from Bechet's pen. He wrote this one. I think people all over the world they recognize it. We'll try to do it justice. Teenagers were fighting pitch battles to get into Bechet's concerts at Sal Playel, and he was selling records. He was finally hitting the market the way he had always wanted to in France. He became a national celebrity, thought of in the same way as Maurice Chevalier, Edith Piaf. He was a French hero. And of course, the French felt that, well, he's from New Orleans, and the French founded New Orleans, and New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz, so France invented jazz. 
And so, to celebrate the victory parade, we're going to hear another number now, and it's called Promenade aux Champs-Élysées. Also, a Sidney Bechet composition, translation, parade through Elysian fields. full circle. In his memoir, Treated General, Bechet talked about the African cultural memory that became a part of his musical motivation, what he called the remembering song, that the dark skies coming down, whatever was going on in your life, and after Katrina, we know what he's talking about, that the music did an explaining of all those things through the remembering song. So to honor that memory for Sydney, uh, the band is now going to give you another composition called Under Paris Skies.
We've been doing our best to celebrate the life and the music of Sidney Bechet. It's not easy to do because there was so much to him. To pack it into 90 minutes or so, it's almost impossible. And so someone would rightly ask at this point, well, wait a minute, you're leaving something out. What do you think would be? Les femmes, the women. This last song, Jerry? This last song is a, it's called Love Me With a Feeling. Bichet, to my knowledge, perhaps his only vocal performance on record, but he, he approached it more as a spoken word. Uh, he did write the lyric and the melody and the harmony, but we're going to give it more of a uh, chanson treatment, more of a, a song treatment, and it's dedicated to all of the women in Bechet's life, which I'm sure is a prolific number. I sure take it away. This is, this, this is something new because this is the first time Jerry took the words. It was always recited the words. It was never put to music. So Jerry, put the, Jerry, Jerry himself put the words to the music and stuff like this. So this is the first time you'll hear it like this. All the other times it was just recited over top of it. So we put Jerry put the melody to the music and this is the way it's going to be. No
This is Sidney's son, Daniel. He was here in 1997 for the Sidney Bechet Centennial Conference and Celebration. And he's a drummer. We hope you've had a good time tonight. We certainly have. I'd like to, once again, thank the musicians who have made this such a memorable event. Sidney Bechet, The Wizard of Jazz, also a good read, but you got to start with the man himself, Sidney Bechet's Treat It Gentle. You won't be sorry. Thanks for your attention, and there's one information that I would like to share with you. Because this is the 13th annual Bill Russell Lecture, there is a book on Bill Russell in preparation. Mary Gaiman is going to be publishing it. This is something that you should stay tuned for because uh, we're going to continue to celebrate what Bill Russell did for the city of New Orleans and for jazz for many years. Thanks for your attention.